Listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. When I say listen to Jesus, I mean listen to Jesus so that you understand what he's saying and what he desires of you and what he's promised you. Listen to Jesus for understanding. I don't mean just listen to fulfill some duty. Listen to understand. Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Turn in your Bibles to uh, Isaiah chapter 42. And as we turn our attention there, uh, God is going to introduce us to his servant. And this servant is his chosen one. And he, this servant is a source of delight for, for God. Now, this servant that Isaiah begins to introduce to us in this second half of Isaiah, what we're going to find a passage about him today in 42, but we'll also find a passage about him in 49, chapter 50, and then again in chapter, last couple verses of 52, and then mostly 53. So we will be, we'll be hearing about this servant in the days ahead. Remember, Isaiah is writing for the future. At least that's what we believe that Isaiah is writing for the future, for the future kingdom uh, of Israel. And, uh, but the kingdom to whom he's writing right now, they find themselves in exile. They find themselves in Babylon with their temple in ruins and in the Davidic uh, king, kingly line uh, at an end. Jerusalem in all its splendor has been destroyed. Its glory is gone. And so uh, there's no temple, there's no king and so the future of the people seems to be really in peril. And so God is writing them. We've said this uh, so far in chapters 40, 41, and now in 42. God is writing them to give them assurance, to give them a vision for the future. And it's into this kind of political, difficult situation that God, through Isaiah, announces the coming of a servant. Now, interpreters over the last couple of millennium and probably even before that, have spent much energy and ink debating whether or the identity of this servant. Namely, and here's where the biggest tension is, is the servant of Isaiah 42, 49, 50, 53, is the servant, is it an individual figure in, in history? Is it a person or is it meant to be a community of people? More specifically, here's the tension that people have have discussed and argued about uh, in history. Is it a singular individual or is the servant meant to represent the nation of Israel? Now, the figure is spoken, as you'll see in just a few moments, the speaker, I mean, the, the figure is spoken of in individual terms, like, a, like an individual person, right? But that doesn't preclude that the servant could be um, a, a group of people, namely Israel. And the reason I say that is because in chapter 43, verse 18, we'll see this probably next week, um, here it's, it's clearly identified that Israel is the blind servant. In 49.3, it explicitly says that Israel is a servant. Here's what it says. And God said to me, Isaiah writing, you are my servant Israel in whom I, ha I will be glorified. So the servant that Isaiah is talking about here in singular individualistic terms could be an individual or it could be 
Israel as, as a group of people. Now, if it's an individual, I mean, who is it? I mean, is it some political leader in history? We all know that Cyrus was someone that God would use at this time frame. Or could it be that he's talking about one of the messianic, or not the, one of the messianic, the messianic king that was supposed to come in the future? Now, the Jews have understandably, in their, in their interpretation of Isaiah, the Jews have, of course, referred to the servant communally as referring to themselves. They believe they are the servant that God desires to use in the verses that we're going to look at in just a few moments. Uh, They are called to be the servant of the world. They're called to be the light uh, to the world. That's how the Jews would interpret this passage. And, And it does seem obvious, again, we'll see this as we go through the text in just a few moments, that it is obvious that God does refer to Israel as a servant, okay? And, and as the things I've told you and some things, other things we're going to see, it does talk about Israel as a servant. But I, I believe, I believe that the servant of Isaiah 42 is an individual person that God is speaking of. And, and more importantly, I would say that God is juxtaposing this servant that he's going to bring forth with Israel, this faithful servant, as opposed to Israel, the servant who has been unfaithful. Again, we'll see that in actually in chapter uh, 42. And I believe this for two reasons. Number one would be that what God says about the servant here, we'll see in just a moment. I mean, it, it clearly, uh, I don't think it lines up with who Israel has been. Okay. They've never lived up to the things that we're going to be talking about this morning. For instance, God says he delights himself in the servant, though I, I think it would be fair to say that God has r- rarely delighted himself in Israel as a servant. And the second reason would be, and this would be more, more important, I think, to, in my understanding and maybe in yours as well, is that in the New Testament, the New Testament writers, who we believe are being led by God's Spirit, they look at this passage and they apply it not to Israel, but they apply it to the coming messianic king. And more specifically, they apply these Isaiah passages, this Isaiah 42 passage, they are going to apply this passage specifically to Jesus as that Messiah and that anointed king. And uh, what we, we'll, we can see that if, you want, if you're taking notes, Matthew 12, Luke 2, Luke 4, Acts 8. These are all passages that quote from Isaiah, from these uh, servant passages, and they apply them to Jesus. Furthermore, when we get to Isaiah 53, though it does not say it's Jesus, the picture that is painted of the servant in Isaiah 53 is so clearly depicting the life of Jesus that it's hard even for Jews uh, to get away from, uh, from that interpretation that this is pointing us to Jesus. So as we work through uh, today's first servant passage, I-, I hope to show you some things about the servant. And, I- and in each case, I'm going to just make a statement of how Jesus fulfilled that, uh, that prediction, that promise, that thing that Isaiah says about the servant. And, um, and my hope this morning and my desire this morning is that when we're finished, here's what's going to happen, that today we'll be encouraged to love Jesus more, that we'll be encouraged to love his servant and maybe to surrender more fully to, to his servant. So with that as, a, as an introduction, let's begin to look at the text. And we're going to start by, by recognizing God's introduction to the servant. 
And he's going to say a number of things about him, how he feels about him, what he's going to do through the servant, and uh, what he's going to do for the servant. And again, each case, I'm going to point to Jesus. So let's begin. Here's the first one. God says of the servant, I will empower my servant. Verse 40, chapter 42, verse 1. This is my servant. I strengthen him. God says, when my servant comes, I'm going to be his source of power. I'm going to be the one who gives him strength. When it comes to Jesus, Jesus said in John chapter 5, Truly I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he's doing, and he will show him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. Jesus says, I do what God tells me to do. I do what God uh, is doing. He was empowered by God. He was more specifically empowered by the Spirit, and and we'll see more of that in just a second. Secondly, I have chosen my uh, my servant. Whoever the servant's going to be, uh, he's going to be God's chosen servant. God chose Israel to be his servant in the Old Testament. God chooses Jesus to be his servant in the New Testament. Israel was unfaithful. Jesus was always faithful. In Peter, in the first chapter, here's what Peter says. For you know that it was not with a perishable thing like silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of the Messiah, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world. There it is. God chose Jesus as the servant before the creation of the world, but has revealed him in these last times for your sake. And though you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so and so your faith and hope are in, in God. So Jesus has been chosen by God, not at the last minute, but before God ever began the whole deal. He chose Jesus to be his servant who would come. Number three, I delight in my servant. Uh, we're all in verse one. I delight in him. Here's my, here's my servant, my chosen servant. I delight in him. God says, I delight in my servant. And uh, he's appointed him and he delights in him. And, and again, I already said this, but rarely does God delight in Israel. Of, of Jesus, God says in Mark 1, 11, you are my beloved son. I am well pleased. Now that doesn't mean that doesn't, God doesn't use the word delighted, but I, I don't see how we could understand it in any other way. You are my beloved son. I am well pleased with you. I am delighted in you. Number four, I will put my spirit on my servant. Again, verse one, I have put my spirit on him. Peter at the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 10, uh, or when he's talking to some of the Jewish leaders, not at the council, but when he's talking to the Jewish leaders, he says, you know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. I mean, here's a verse that talks about God empowering Jesus through his spirit, but here he got, Peter says, Jesus was anointed by his spirit. At the baptism of Jesus, the spirit of God descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove so that John the Baptist could behold it and others could behold it as well. Jesus, the servant, was also Jesus, the son. And the power of God was on him because the spirit of God was on him. Number five, God's servant would bring justice. 
Into verse one, he will bring justice to the nations. Skip over verse two, look at verse three. He will faithfully bring justice. He will not grow weak or be discouraged until he has established justice on earth. God has appointed his servant to come and bring justice to the world. God, that God is a God of justice, the Bible's really, really clear on that. Here's Isaiah 51. Isaiah would say in just a few chapters, he would say, listen to me, O people, hear me, my nation, instruction will go out from me, my justice will become a light to the nations, my righteousness draws near speedily, my salvation, it's on its way, my arm will bring justice to the nations, the islands will look to me and wait and hope for my arm. Isaiah says that God would bring justice. God is a God of justice. Micah the prophet told Israel, you know what God desires of you. Three things, that you act justly. That you act justly. God desires justice from us because God is a God of justice. To love mercy and to walk humbly with him. Now here's one reason why the Jews had a hard time receiving Jesus as their messianic king, as the king that they'd been waiting for, and are still, conservative Jews are still waiting for. Here's the reason why they had a hard time receiving him, because he didn't bring justice to the world when he came. There are still injustices all around the world. So if Jesus was the Messiah who's bringing justice, if Jesus is the servant who's bringing justice, why are there just injustices in the world? We talked about this during Advent. Because the Bible says that the Messiah was coming twice, once to save us and then coming to rule over us. And we wait for his second return. And when he, when he comes again, the servant of God will bring justice in all the earth. The wicked will be destroyed. There'll be ashes under his feet, the prophet Malachi says. Isaiah says in chapter 66, God will look at, go out and look on the rotting corpses of those who have rebelled against God and practice injustice. Number six, God's servant will be humble, not arrogant. Back to verse two. He will not cry out or shout or make his voice heard in the street. God's servant wasn't going to be boastful, loud, obnoxious, or prideful. He was not going to shout in the street or draw attention to himself. When I think about Jesus, I think probably what you think was that he was constantly telling people, don't tell anybody about me. Don't tell anybody that you got, were healed by me. I, hey, don't go share this with anyone. He was constantly doing that. Why was he doing that? Because he wasn't seeking to simply draw attention to himself. He wasn't seeking to draw the, cloud, the crowds. He wasn't, just like it said in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, he did not cry out in the streets. He did not make his voice heard in the streets. Paul said that Jesus was a man of great humility. You know Why? Because he was equal with God, but he didn't flaunt it. He was equal with God. He didn't hold on to it. He emptied himself. Instead, he humbled himself to become a person like us. And not just a person like us, but a person who would die for us and serve us. Number seven, God's servant will be gentle and compassionate. You'll recognize this verse, I would imagine. He will not break a bruised reed, and he will not put out a smoldering wick. If you've ever grabbed a cattail or any kind of marshy, you know, reed that's already got a little bend in it and you're trying not to bend it, you know, if you lean it too much, the weight of the thing on the end will break it. 
He says, Jesus will, this servant will be so gentle, he won't break a bruised reed, or if a wick is about, I mean, your candle's about to go out and you don't want it to go out and you're trying to, you're trying to keep the, the wick burning right, but you put it out nonetheless because it's smoldering and it's just about out. He won't, he says, he'll be so gentle, he won't break the reed or he won't put out the smoldering wick. Jesus was not harsh. Jesus was tender and Jesus was compassionate. Broken sinners loved him. Broken sinners came to him. He sought to strengthen them, to heal them. And I'm talking about the Samaritan woman by the well. I'm talking about the woman with the blood disorder. I'm talking about blind Bartimaeus. I'm talking about the woman, they're talking about the woman with the bleeding disorder, the woman with adult, caught in adultery. And, and just everybody, every, all these broken sinners that the world didn't care about, Jesus embraced When the leper came to him, Jesus would touch him. Nobody would do that. Jesus was tender. He was gentle. He was compassionate. Number eight, God's servant would lead the nations. The coast and the islands will wait for his instruction. That's in the end of verse seven, I I believe. Or no, verse four, I'm sorry. It's in the end of verse four. God's servant would lead the nations. The coast will wait for his instruction. The coast and the islands, as we've already established, is a way of referring to the Gentile nations. The Gentile nations, they they will look to God's servant for leadership. And Jesus came not just for the Jews, but Jesus said, I've come for all the world, for, for God so loved the world that he sent the Lord Jesus. So Jesus was all about the Gentile nations and the Jewish nation. Number nine, God's servant has a specific purpose. Verse five, this is what God the Lord says, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I love this. This is God's identification of himself. He says, he identifies himself in three ways. First, I'm Yahweh. Yahweh is the Hebrew word for I am. God is trying to talk about his eternal nature. I am the eternal one. Then he says, I'm the creator of all the universe. And then he says, I'm the author of life. I'm the one who gives people the breath of life. I'm the one who gives them the spirit of life within them who walk on the earth. But then this is what he says about his servant. He says, I am the Lord. I have called you for a righteous purpose. I will hold you by your hand. I will walk. I will watch over you. I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the nations. Now here's what God says. God's servant has a specific purpose. And here's his purpose. It's a righteous purpose. It's a purpose to establish a covenant between himself and the people, between himself and the nations. The servant is going to be the light to the nations. Here's, Here's what Jesus did on the night of his death. Paul records it for us, 1 Corinthians. He says, for I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after the supper and said, this, here it is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is the covenant that the servant of Isaiah was going to make with the nations. This, this, is, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So here's what Jesus, is, here's what Jesus did. Jesus, by his own life, giving up his own life as a substitute for us, he made a covenant 
with us for eternal life. A covenant to give us eternal life when he returns and raises us from the dead. He established a covenant with us. Number 10, God's servant would set people free. Verse seven, in order to open the eyes, I'm gonna make a covenant in order to open the eyes and bring out uh, blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those sitting in darkness from the prison house. God's servant is coming to rescue people who were oppressed, lost, blind, imprisoned. Now, like, like maybe, like me, when I read this, the first thing I thought of was when Jesus went into the synagogue in Nazareth and he pulls out the scroll of Isaiah and he reads from chapter 60, I believe it is. He says, the, the scroll of Isaiah, he unrolls as the spirit, he reads this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set, the free, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, headed back and said, listen, today in your hearing, this is now fulfilled because I, the servant of the Lord, have come to do exactly what Isaiah said the servant would do. Jesus came to set us free from our bondage to selfishness, our bondage to hurtful thinking, and behavior. That's what God's servant would do for us. And you know, when I think about Jesus setting us free from our bondage to sin, our bondage to selfishness, I think about Zacchaeus, you know? Remember Zacchaeus, the little wee little guy who climbed up the tree? But you remember after he spent an afternoon with Jesus, what does he do? He gives, he gives half of his fortune to the poor and to the people he defrauded. He says, man, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to make that right. Here's what Jesus does when he comes into our life as the servant. He sets us free and he changes our life. You know why you should be making disciples? I, I mean, we should be making disciples because disciples have eternal life. But here's why you should be making disciples. I think maybe even more valuable than that. You should be making disciples. You should seek to make disciples of your children. You should seek to make disciples of your friends and your coworkers because disciples of Jesus change the world. It's the disciples of Jesus who affect our culture and our community. It's men and women like you and me who follow Jesus, who have the spirit of God on us and the servant of the Lord within us. And we change in such a way that we change our community. So he wraps up this description of the servant in verse eight. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to the idols. The past events indeed have happened. Now I declare new events. I announce them to you before they occur. In other words, I've told you things in the past, but now I'm telling you things in the future. My servant is coming. Now here's the thing I want to need you to understand. That, that's preterist for us. That's past tense for us. The servant has come. Jesus has come. And Jesus was that servant. Now, uh, Jesus, God says this, hey, I, I am the creator of all things. I told you the past. Now I'm telling you the future. And it's been perfectly predicted for you. So when you get there, believe. When you get there, hear me, because I'm telling you in advance. So we continue through the chapter. Isaiah now continues by exhorting us to praise God for the coming of his servant. Verse 10, sing a new song to the Lord. 
Sing his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea with all that fills it. You coast in islands with your inhabitants. In other words, everybody, let the desert and its city shout. Settlements where Kedar dwells, cry aloud. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them cry out from the mountain slaps. Let, let them give glory to God and declare his praise in the coast and the islands. That's the nations of the world. Here's what, here's what God says. Here's what, here's what Isaiah says. Let's sing a new song of praise to God for what he's going to do or what he's done. In our case, we've already seen it. Let everybody praise the Lord. Let the Gentile nations, let Israel, let every city, every rural part praise the Lord. The servant has come for us all and let the whole earth sing praise. Uh, just a thought before I, I, I move on, just one more thought. Look at, look at verse, uh, verse 10. I, I've talked about this numerous times over the decades, but sing a new song to the Lord. Sing his praise from the ends of the earth. Sing a new song to the Lord. Uh, I just really want to encourage you to do two things. One is sing. Sing. And the other is sing a new song. And I get it. We have our old favorites that we love to sing. But you just go back to the Psalms and see how many times God says, sing a new song. Sing a new song. He, should, he has always, he has always been through the generations. And even now, he's always putting new songs in our hearts of praise for him. So sing and sing new songs to him. Sing your favorites, but sing new songs. We sang a new verse today. Um, the point is this though, praise God for his servant. Praise God for his servant. That's what Isaiah says. God says through Isaiah, he is our king. Number three, or the third division in the chapter, what, what, what God will do at the coming of the servant. I, I think he turns his attention now to what God is going to do. And again, I'm, I'm going from the context. The context is about his servant in the future. Here is what he is going to do. Verse 13, the Lord advances like a warrior. He stirs up his zeal like a soldier. He shouts, he roars aloud, he prevails over his enemy. So if this is about the servant, let's, let's start by addressing the apparent contradiction. So there's an apparent contradiction if indeed uh, verse 13 is about the servant that we've been talking about. And the, con the apparent contradiction would be this. I told you a minute ago that the servant of God was coming and he would not open his mouth. He would not shout in the street. He would not draw attention to himself. But yet here it says he's coming and he shouts and he roars aloud and he prevails over his enemy. Well, how do you deal with that? If this is the same servant, how do we address this apparent, well, which is a contradiction, that doesn't, it's an apparent contradiction. How can that be, right? So, well, there's a couple of ways of addressing it. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this isn't the same servant. Maybe this is a different servant that's coming. Maybe this is God and not his servant that's coming. That would be one way of addressing it, saying, well, I'm just wrong in what I'm suggesting. But the other way of addressing this apparent contradiction would be to say we're talking about the coming of Jesus as our savior and the coming of Jesus as our king or as our ruler, as, as God, right? Um, it, when he came as a servant, he came compassionately and gently and, and, and humbly to establish a covenant by which he would redeem us all from, uh, from our sin, ransom us from death, Right? See, he came as a servant to do that, and he did it with gentleness and with kindness and, 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 and again, with great humility. 
But when he comes again, he's not coming. If the Bible is correct, he's not coming in the same way. He's coming the second time to rule over us. He's coming the second time to be our earthly king, to to set all things right, to change us. I mean, to, I mean to, to fix all, to remove the curse and fix everything that's wrong in the earth. And here he says, he's coming as a warrior to prevail over his enemies. Verse 14, I've kept silent from ages past. I've been quiet and restrained myself, but now I will groan like a woman in labor, gasping breathlessly. God says, I have been silent for ages, but not anymore. I've been restrained, but I'm not going to be anymore. I think we're talking about at the coming of the servant. So one of the arguments against God is the hiddenness of God. Have you ever heard that before? The hiddenness of God is an argument that uh, anti-theists would say, people that don't believe in God, they would say, you know, God can't exist because he's so hidden. If God exists, why, why would he not show himself? Why would he just not be so revealed that we'd all get to see him, all know of his existence? Why is God so hidden? I, uh, you know, why is he hidden from our senses? Why is God hidden from our senses? God says he's not hidden. God says everything I've done in creation makes it so clear for you to see that I exist, right? But, but he is hidden from our senses. And I can't answer the question in the hiddenness of God. I don't have an answer for why God has hidden himself from our senses, maybe in the ways that we would like him. We would like Jesus to be preaching this morning, right? We would like God, the Father, the Spirit. We, we would like him to show up in person for our senses to behold, right? We would, we would love that. Why he doesn't do that, I can't answer that question. But here I would like to point out something that, it, that if, if this is talking about the hiddenness of God, did you notice that God said, I have done this? I have kept silent from ages past. I have made this choice. I have been quiet and restrained myself. And, and you say, why, why might God have done that? Why might God have restrained himself and kept quiet for the ages? Because one of the things that God says is that without faith, you can't please me. So what is faith? Faith is us responding to what God has revealed. So God has, he says by his own declaration, I have revealed enough for you to know that I exist. And I have revealed enough for you to know that I am glorious and great. And I have revealed enough for you to know that I am good. In these last days, God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus. God has revealed himself. And he says, what I'm looking for is for faith. So maybe, maybe God has kept himself hidden because of his desire for faith. I don't know. But notice what comes next. But there is coming a day, God says, where I will no longer remain silent. I have kept silent from ages past. I've been quiet and restrained myself. But now, but now I will groan like a woman in labor, grasping breathlessly. God says he's going to be loud like a woman in labor. And I'm not touching that, but I think we all get the picture. Verse 15, I will lay waste mountains and hills, dry up all the vegetation. I will turn rivers into islands and dry up marshes. Here's what God says. There's not going to be an obstacle that's going to stand in my way when the time comes for me to reveal myself. Mountains and hills will not get in my way. Rivers and marshes will not get in my way. The Bible imagery is that God is going to shake the world and you and I will all see it and we'll all know it. He goes on, 
I will lead the blind by the way they did not know. I will guide them on paths that they have not known. I will turn darkness into light in front of them and rough places into level ground. That is what I will do for them. I will not abandon them. I think God is talking about when his servant comes, that the blind people, the captive people that are going to be set, he's talking about guiding us into his kingdom. Bringing us into his earthly kingdom, he will not abandon us and he is going to bring us in when he comes. But on that day when the servant returns, those who have rejected him, who've trusted in gods of their own creation or trusted in themselves, they will weep and be utterly ashamed. Verse 17, they will be turned back. On that day when the servant comes to rule and to reign, those who have put their trust in an idol and say to a cast image, you are my God, they will be turned back and they will be ashamed. So I'm out of time and I'm at the last part of the chapter. So I'm I'm going to continue. So hang in there, everybody. So in the last part of the chapter, we have Isaiah calling Israel to repent and get ready for the servant who's coming. And I would say this is a call to you and me to repent and get ready for his return. So I'm calling this last section, repent and get ready for my servant. Verse 18, listen, you deaf, look, you blind, so that you may see who is blind, but my servant or deaf, like my messenger I am sending. Who is blind, like my dedicated one or blind, like the servant of the Lord. Now, this can be a bit confusing and, you know, because he's talking, God is talking about his servant being blind and deaf and not listening and et cetera. Well, I don't think he's talking about the servant that he's, that he's sending. I think he's talking about the servant that he has sent, Israel, the community, the nation. And he is saying to Israel, you've been both deaf, deaf and you've been blind. Though seeing many things, you pay no attention, verse 20. Though, though his ears are open, he doesn't listen. It's not that Israel can't see. It's not that this servant can't see or hear what God is saying. It's saying they've chosen not to see. They're choosing not to listen. And unfortunately, that's how we can be. The Spirit of God can be teaching and telling and convicting us and saying things to us. And it's not that we're not hearing. It's that we're not willing to listen. We're not willing to obey because we don't want to obey because we want something else. And he says to Israel, you're not listening. Though you've got eyes, you're shutting your eyes. You're closing your ears. Verse 21, because of his righteousness, the Lord was pleased to magnify his instruction and make it glorious. God has always been willing to reveal his will, his heart, his desire, his instructions to us. He's written them on the heart of every Jew and he's written them on the heart of every Gentile. He gave the Jews specific writings from the prophets. He he wrote his law down for them and yet they refused to see it. They refused to listen to it. And so verse 22, but this is a people plundered and looted. All of them trapped in holes or imprisoned in dungeons. They have become plunder with no one to rescue them and loot with no one to say, give it back. The prophet Isaiah says that that Babylon has plundered Israel. Or maybe he's writing to his contemporaries saying, God is going to plunder. Babylon is going to plunder you and there will be no escape for you. No one is going to come for you. No one's going to set you free from from what you've chosen. Verse 23, who among you will hear this? Let him listen and obey in the future. 
Man, that's a great verse. Who among you will hear this? Let him listen and obey in the future. Who among them would listen to what God was saying about the future and let them obey when they read it in the future? How many of us today, we're in the future from all that. How many of us would hear and listen and obey what the Lord says? Who will hear and believe and obey the voice of God? Verse 24, who gave Jacob to the robber and Israel to the plunderers? Who did it? Was it not I, the Lord? Have we not sinned against him? Uh, They were not willing to walk in his ways and they would not listen to his, I think this is Isaiah interjecting himself. Have we not listened, uh, have we not sinned against him? They were not willing to walk in his ways and they would not listen to his instructions. So he poured out his furious anger and the power of war on Jacob. He surrendered him with fire, but he did not know it. Jacob did not know it. It burned him, but he did not take it to heart. And this is talking about Israel. They're not, they have not repented. And I think it's a cry and a call and a warning to all of us. Repent. Repent and come to the servant who has loved us from the beginning, right? And who did all the things that Jesus has done. Who gave Israel to Babylon? Was it not I, Yahweh? Was it not I, the Lord, who did that? And why did he do that? Because Israel, his servant, wasn't walking in the ways of God or listening to the will of God. So God brought this war on them. And Isaiah says years later, can you see it? Can you see it? Will you obey the servant when he comes? I think he's preparing Israel and the, and the islands and the, and the nations, the Gentile nations, the coast. He's preparing us for the day that Jesus would come. All right, so that's Isaiah 42. Let me just get to the takeaways. And I just have three short takeaways for us. On Wednesday night at our Bible study, we were listening to Tim Mackey. And Tim Mackey was talking about the need to listen. And he talked about how hard it was to listen, how hard it is to listen. And, and I, I think maybe, you know, Tim, when he was talking about how hard it is to listen, he was talking about the humility needed to listen to others because we, it's so easy for our minds to wander and think about other things, right? So he could have been talking about that. I think maybe that's kind of what he was talking about. But, but we also talked about the humility needed to listen, to listen for understanding. And when it comes to God, right, we're under obligation, to listen, to understand, to obey. So here's my first takeaway this morning. Listen to the servant. Listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. When I say listen to Jesus, I mean listen to Jesus so that you understand what he's saying and what he desires of you and and what he's promised you. Listen to Jesus for understanding. I don't mean just listen to fulfill some duty. Listen to understand. When Jesus was transfigured on the mountain, you remember this? He's with uh, Peter, James, and John, and there's a voice from heaven, and, and this is what the voice says to those three men. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son. I take delight in him. Jimmy's paraphrase. But then he says this, listen to him. Listen to him. I tell new believers all the time. I tell people that are searching. I say, go to the the four first books of the New Testament and read there. Because there you'll read the words of Jesus. There you'll read Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Just listen to Jesus. My takeaway this morning is, Humble yourselves and be willing to listen 
to Jesus. Here's my second takeaway. Love the servant. Love Jesus. And I'm talking about emotionally. Listen to me. I'm talking about emotionally loving Jesus. You know, my, uh, my latest granddaughter was born this, uh, this Thursday. And so Thursday night, I, I went over to meet her. Her name is Adeline. And I got to tell you, you know, I, I'm walking down the hall. And I'm struggling right now. I'm walking down the hall. And I walk in the room. And I just break emotionally. Because I love her so much. I love her so much. I told her daddy, I said, you won't understand it, but when you hold her in your arms, you'll, you'll, you'll just wonder, how can I, how, how can I, how do I love this thing so much, right? I, I think we need to love Jesus with that kind of emotional love. And you know, my granddaughter's precious to me Jesus needs to be precious to all of us. And we need to love him with that kind of emotional love. And you say, well, I'm just not an emotional person. I mean, I, I get it. I, I, I don't even know. How, how do you fabricate emotional love? I, I don't know what you can. So I'm not even sure what I'm saying. But I'm saying that, that our love for Jesus has to be, it's more than just an intellectual thing. It's something from our heart. And that brings me to my third takeaway is would be would be listen to the servant and love the servant. You know, but the Bible defines love and it, it hardly rarely doesn't really talk about love as an emotion. It talks about love as obedience, right? So here's my third. Follow the servant. Obey his voice, his will, his desires for you. Jesus told us that as we make disciples, teach them to observe all that he told us. This means teach them to live their life in accordance with what Jesus wants them to do. On the last night of his death, Jesus tells his disciples on two different occasions, he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So, I mean, I would even argue for myself, I would argue to myself, I would argue to you, that we cannot say we love Jesus if, we cannot argue that we love Jesus if we're willfully disregarding his commandments and intentionally dishing him. I, I, I think it's just so hard for us to argue that we love Jesus if we're dishing him in disobedience. And I don't think that, dis, listen, I don't think that disobedience necessarily doesn't mean that I don't love Jesus. I'm simply saying that it means there's some flaw in my love for Jesus that I need to, I need to work on, that I need him to help me with, you know, so that my love would reflect my, my life of following after him. So the big takeaway in all this would be examine your life and repent. If you need to repent, it simply means change your mind. And by changing your mind, it's not just intellectual, it's change your mind so that it changes your life. And I would say, if you need to listen to Jesus, repent. I mean, if, you, if you're not listening to Jesus, you need to repent and listen to Jesus. And you need to love Jesus. And you need to follow Jesus. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed.